Thank you, Suncoast Singers, for that beautiful medley of Christmas songs. If I could ask the uh, AV team, I'd like to bring up those pie charts, if we could, of giving. There are pie charts I want to talk about this morning for a few minutes before we go into the message. I want to look this morning when... Um, between our treasurer and our secretary, they made these pie charts up. When I saw them, I was very, very encouraged. We're looking at our giving to, giving to foreign missions this year. And the total numbers in the bottom left there, you can see the variety of places the resources have gone. And it's a nice spread over different parts geographically of our world. Next slide, please. Our local missions are also very encouraging. Uh, we see Michigan Advanced Partners, which I want to encourage everyone watching. I'll encourage all of you to be systematic, both with the world budget, Michigan Advanced Partners, and the local church budget. But of our local missions, we can see 64000 for evangelism. We raised $50,000 for Neighbor to Neighbor this summer. And we also have given to a variety of things you can see down the right. And there are probably a lot of other little offerings, much smaller than this. But when we look at this, $191,900. Next slide, please. When we look at the overall giving relative to the church, we can see that we're involved in a couple of different things. We raised $112,500 for the renovation. We've taken in another $18,000 for the roof. We operate on about $164,000, which... Uh, this year will be a very, very small percent of the total giving. We'll probably come into close to $3 million that flows through the church. That's how much we're using to operate, which is a very, very small piece of $3 million. Education will assist in the school subsidy. Let's go to the next slide, please. Now, this is what encouraged me. When I looked at this slide, I was exceptionally encouraged because... You can see where our, our priorities are. $279,000 has gone to the church school. Can you say amen? amen? You know, listening to the testimony of Maddie and Daniel this morning. And of course, so many others. Foreign missions, 81450 Local missions, 191000 75% of that chart is other-centered. And that is going to be clearly a sign of a church that God is going to bless. His Spirit is amongst us. Uh, do we have any more? Or is that the last one? I think that might be it. This morning, I'm bringing those to your attention because the smallest part of the pie still needs a strong push at the very end. If you're not systematically returning offerings to the Lord, I'm inviting you this Sabbath to make the final parts of 2020 a very focused part of your financial plan. Uh, we have two Sabbaths left, today and the next Sabbath. We need to finish strong, and there are elements of our local budget that support many of those things you saw up there. This is the one thing I do want to say. When you consider the money we've raised for the wells, for neighbor to neighbor, when you consider the extra money that's gone to the church school, if all of that money would have flowed into the budget, 
we would have far surpassed our financial giving for the year. I affirm you in Jesus, Pastor Paul in the New Testament, would affirm the givers of their gifts. This morning, I'm affirming you, but I'm asking you, as the Lord has blessed you, please partner with us on this journey to finishing strong in 2020. Let's pray. Lord, what an encouragement this church is to me and to so many others. And I'm just asking now this morning, as we think about what it has meant, the cost it has taken for heaven to bring us back into the fold, I pray, Lord, may our lives be completely dedicated to the task of lighting the world with the glory of the gospel. So please bless us now, Lord. Make us faithful to you. And may we have joy in giving as you give. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning I've entitled my message, Dear and Dangerous Occupations. And if you get online, you can go to the Bureau of Labor Statistics and you can find out what the most dangerous job in America is. Some of you work these jobs and some of you know how dangerous they are up close and personal. The most dangerous thing to do, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, is to work with logs. If you're a logger, you are in the most dangerous field that statistics are kept with. And we want to encourage you to be careful because those of you that log in our midst are precious treasures to us. And God has intervened in some of your lives to preserve you, sometimes more than once. And we value the safety that heaven creates in cooperation with our best efforts. The second thing, fishing and fisheries. Aircraft pilots and flight engineers are number three. Roofers, which a number of you are, also are on the list, one of the more dangerous professions. You might be surprised that the people who collect uh, the trash that we create, our sanitation workers, they're number five on the list. It's a dangerous thing to be out on the road. If there's one thing you learn when you look at dangerous professions in America, it's that people that travel are in the largest component when you aggregate the data, they are in the most dangerous works. Farmers, ranchers, and other agricultural workers make the list at number seven. Structural iron and steel workers at number eight. Construction trades and extraction workers. So those people who get your cars out of the ditch and those people who build your buildings, they have dangerous jobs. And some of you do more than one of these things. And then there's some that you might not expect, the people that mow your grass and keep your grounds also have a dangerous job. We want to be praying for these people. We don't take their safety and well-being for granted. But this morning, the category is not just dangerous occupations. The title is Dear and Dangerous Occupations. So take your Bibles this morning, if you would, and let's make a journey into what some of those dear and dangerous occupations are. Go back to the book of Genesis, and we'll look at the first occupation named outside of the garden. We know that Adam and Eve were keepers of the garden. Of course, they were expelled from the garden for acts of rebellion. And they had two children. Those two children had two very different professions. Genesis chapter 4. Interestingly enough, the older and his profession falls in behind the younger and his. Genesis chapter 4, looking at verse 1. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And she gave birth to his brother Abel. 
And here we go, the younger in front of the older, which is a repeating theme in places of the Scripture. Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time, we don't know how many years are represented in that little phrase, that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought the firstling of the flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And by the way, friends, there is probably the first psychological principle of emotional and mental well-being in the scriptures. Right doing leads to strength of inner person, courage, and hopefulness. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and the desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother. Now you wonder what Abel's response was. It came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. You get the idea that two brothers had a discussion. Some things were shared in the discussion that didn't set well with older brother. They simmered in the back of his mind until a rendezvous was found. There out in the field, there was a final showdown of words. In the midst of that encounter, the older brother strikes the, the younger, and he kills him. We don't know any of the gory, brutal details. You can only imagine the trauma to mother and father. But God has watched it all. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he flat out lies. And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, right from the very beginning of Scripture, we begin to see a theme. God knew where Abel was and what had happened to him. Cain knew where Abel was and what had happened to him. God gave Cain a chance to make it right and get back on the ground of forgiveness. Forgiveness was clearly a part of God's nature. But in the questioning of God comes a question for modern society. In the role of Abel becomes a model for modern society. And this theme will continue throughout the Scriptures. When God comes to Cain... And he says, where is your brother? God is implying upon the family dynamics of humanity. In this case, yes, they were all related biologically. And of course, in some distant way, we are as well. But God was conferring and more than intimating that there is a fraternal there is a brotherhood-sisterhood dynamic amongst the human race. There is a responsibility of care for each other. Cain gets the message clearly, which is why he responds to God and says, am I 
my brother's keeper. God doesn't answer the question in the affirmative. His question in the beginning affirms it already. And this morning, as we think about the birth of Jesus, the announcement of the angels, I want us to see why the shepherds, why amongst the myriad of announcers and trumpeters of good news did Jesus choose the shepherds? Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 20. In this phrase, and by the way, of the 100 plus mentionings of shepherds, no book of the Bible mentions the concept, the word, and the role of shepherd more than Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 20, is this same haunting question that comes to Cain just outside the garden. It says in Jeremiah 13, verse 20, lift up your eyes and see those coming from the north. Where is the flock that was given you? Your beautiful flock. I want to make a progression this morning through the metaphor, through the symbol of shepherds and shepherding. I want to take you on a journey and understand that when God chooses a livelihood, a human occupation with which to identify, this is the one he chooses. We're very well versed with David and his famous 23rd Psalm that says, the Lord is my shepherd. And is this simply a momentary occurrence a beautiful simile or metaphor for God coming from a shepherd's heart, or is indeed the role of shepherding from beginning to end the chosen, God-ordained, self-embraced, self-identifying occupation of heaven? Ellen White will write in the book Advent is Home, society is composed of families, and it is what the heads of families make it. Out of the heart are the issues of life, and the heart of the community of the church and of the nation is the household. The well-being of society, the success of the church, the prosperity of the nation depend upon the home. This phrase from Jeremiah 13:20 is used often in her writings to refer to the responsibilities of moms and dads. Where is your flock? The little flock, the beautiful little flock. So indeed, we shouldn't be surprised if we find ourselves in the throes of a very difficult moment in our nation where some are concerned that we're completely changing in essence and character towards a more government-focused, socialistic type of world. We shouldn't be surprised that if there's a war on the idea of fatherhood, and if there's a war on the idea of marriage, and if there's a war on the rights and prerogatives of parents, and if there's a war on the dynamics of what's to constitute marriage, if this statement is true, we shouldn't be surprised to find ourselves where we are some 50 years after the great societal revolution began. If the home is the center of government and the parents are the first shepherds, Should we find ourselves as a nation in the position we're in at this very moment, it could very well be that there's an abdication of faithful shepherding in the home. And especially as we go through the the developing snowball of self-esteemism in the shaping of a society, 
No parent wants to be the bad guy. No parent wants to be the person where somebody else's parent is the great buddy and wonderful friend of the adolescent group. And yet we might find ourselves in a position today where rather than blaming the politicians, the preachers, and the teachers, and the policemen, maybe it's an honest assessment moment for the parents to say to themselves, have they behaved as hirelings or are they true and faithful shepherds? I want to assure you today that beyond the shadow of a doubt, and I've mulled this over many times in my life, and this morning as I was thinking about this, maybe last night it came to me, I had a very faithful shepherdess in my life. My mother, and I was visiting with somebody yesterday morning who referenced this very same thing. My mother was a very faithful shepherdess to me. She taught me to tell the truth. She taught me to work. She made it very clear that the teachers were her best friends and that if they said something, it was to be done, and beyond that, they were to be honored. She made it very clear that I was to be an obedient person in regards to law and society. The fact of the matter is, I'm standing before you here today, even in her compulsory infusion of Christian education into my early adolescent life, I'm standing here today because she knew what was best for her little flock, and it wasn't her little flock that was bending her self-esteem needs and twisting her little flock's experience. If you're a parent this morning listening to me, you have a fiduciary. That means you have an obligation resting upon you for the careful looking out of the people in your flock. And as I sat and visited with the three young men that will be baptized in the next service with their, at least one of their parents in the room, I reminded them that when you turn 18, that's not the automatic maturity moment. You still honor your parents. We're living in a strange age where children have rights now in contradistinction to their parents. I wasn't aware of this, and I don't want to follow carelessly some line I find on the Internet, but I have this morning with me somewhere, yes, right here. I have the transgender student guidelines for the school districts in New Jersey, seven pages of legal documentation. It doesn't matter what your parents say, and I didn't have to search hard for this. Almost everything I share with you as a pastor comes from the very first page of a Google search. And this might have been the very first hit. So I'm reading a blog on fatherhood because I believe there's been a war on fatherhood for an awful long time. And I read about the fact that in New Jersey, the schools have no obligation in regards to dealing with minors when it to report to parents dynamics of transgender preference or identification. And while I believe all people should be treated with dignity, our whole society is at war with the very elements that constitute society, which is in the home, and the proper authority of parents in that home. And so these things are not just cultural lore of the wrong type, they're actual a prime exhibits of the war that's been on against parenting, against fatherhood, against marriage. 
These very elements, because they lie at the well-being of society and the success of the church and the prosperity of the nation, they've been under attack for two generations, and it's no wonder we've sown the wind, and now we're getting ready to reap the whirlwind. And it's a serious time to be living. When I think about the element of shepherding, there's another component. You want to do a quick search? Just go type in Jeremiah 13.20 into the search engine at the White Estate. Teachers must love the children because they're younger members of the Lord's family. The Lord will inquire of them as of the parents. Where is the flock that was given thee, thy beautiful flock? Those teachers who have not a progressive religious experience who are not learning daily lessons in the school of Christ that they may be examples to the flock, but who accept their wages is the main thing. They're not fit for the solemn, awful positions they occupy. Actually, I'm going to read that again and get it exactly right. I wondered when I read it. They are not fit for the solemn, awfully solemn positions they occupy. I happen to be married to a fourth grade teacher. And I really do believe that our teachers at our village school and most of our Seventh-day Adventist educators look at their little classrooms as families, as flocks. They, they, many of the, these teachers are old enough to be shepherds or shepherdesses to the parents that are bringing their little uh, jewels to them. There is an awful, solemnly awful responsibility upon teachers as guiders of the flock. But let's go farther. Let's go to pastors. Put it to yourself, pastor. Put it to yourself. The Latin word pastor means shepherd. I have a message to those who labor in the ministry. The Lord is not pleased with the work you've given him, and he does not accept it at your hands because you've neglected the very part of the work that is the most essential to the salvation of souls and the health of the church. The minister is to be a shepherd. She goes on to write, all who regard as an unwelcome task the care and the burdens that fall to the lot of a faithful shepherd are reproved by the apostle who wrote, this is Peter, 1 Peter 5, not by constraint but willingly, not for filthy lucre or money but of a ready mind. All such unfaithful servants the chief shepherd would willingly release. So I want to say to any pastors that might be watching me or will watch this service later on, if your heart is not in what you're doing, if you don't genuinely care for the church, you have the wrong profession. You're going to be held accountable for it somewhere down the road. And in a society that is trending terrible towards corporate selfishness and hedonism, in a society that's been cultured and schooled in the elements of consumerism and the kingly lordship of a well-to-do middle class, you're in a very dangerous position. Some jobs are more dangerous than others. Yes, if you're handling a chainsaw, if you're flying an airplane or holding an air nailer, if you're picking up somebody's trash, you're on one of the 10 most dangerous jobs in America. But for those who fail to recognize there's a coming accountability for their role, there's a danger that exceeds it. I can remember talking with my children. There's a few things I've learned along the way. Life is the educator. Join us next Sabbath for a sermon I've entitled Gray Matters. But I, I realized early on there's a few very dangerous prof professions. I have one of the most dangerous professions. And there are a lot of people who won't choose it because they've figured it out. 
They're smart. They know the mighty Mississippi River of culture is moving this way, and the role of a faithful shepherd is is to go this way. They know that the masses are drinking from the polluted fire hydrants of this world that are spewing the sewage of the destruction of desire for salvation, let alone a knowledge of salvation. And in the profession I'm in, which is a very dangerous profession, they figure out that if they're not particularly slick, they won't survive. And so they put themselves in positions to kind of maneuver between things and slide in and out of certain situations. All along the way, people go unwarned. Groups go unchecked sometimes, individuals. It's an emotionally expensive, relationally challenging role that a pastor has. And when somebody says to the pastor, I'm praying for you, it's probably the very best thing they can give them because they're constantly making decisions about whether to intervene or wait, whether to speak up or look for a different moment. But the real danger to pastoring is to move away from a journey built around a personal walk with Christ, convictions born out of the Word, and just become a people pleaser. How many myriad thousands and millions of people will be lost because pastors started peddling the gospel, which the Apostle Paul said he doesn't do or didn't do? And how many people will be lost because someone didn't stand up and say, You know, you're going down the wrong road. I praise God for this village church, the sweet spirit, the supportive prayerful encounters, not that we always agree, but that we bring a dignity of humility with confidence to the dialogues of disagreement. By and large, the hands of this pastoral staff are held up wonderfully through prayer and willing service and financial giving and the sharing of talents and time. God gives to every minister a solemn responsibility. All will be called to render a strict account for their ministry, she writes. The master will demand of every shepherd, where is the flock that has given thee thy beautiful flock? He that is found faithful will receive a rich reward. When the chief shepherd shall appear, says the apostle, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. All right, so we've touched on the parents and the teachers and the pastors, but let's not get out of here with somebody who's not in one of those categories. Let's make sure before we go any farther that we're really clear in our understanding. In the Desire of Ages, page 641, so not in a faraway place, not in the dusty annals of a data file in some faraway database, she writes, to every soul a trust is given. Of everyone the chief shepherd will demand, Where is the flock that was given thee, thy beautiful flock? And what wilt thou say when he shall punish thee? In other words, you may not be married. You may not be be of the age of maturity. You may never be married. You may never be a pastor. You may never be a teacher in the sense of receiving an income. But somehow in the estate of heaven and the planning of God, Every single individual who takes the name of Christ has a responsibility to the network of people that trust them and listen to them and follow them. 
What a sad thing for a child to grow up without any sense of responsibility. I, I used to say, and I still say it, although I mentioned this yesterday afternoon to my wife and my daughter, and they started thinking about it to see if they'd agree with me. I, I still say it. I still believe it. I've never met a person who loves horses that I don't like. Now, you probably have, maybe. But all the people who love horses, I know why. We had horses for a little bit. To love horses, you must love to give your money away, love to give your time away, love to smell, and love to be captivated in in scheduling by those animals that just eat your money down. And if you love to do all those things, you're probably a pretty nice person. For me, it involved calling the vet for a couple emergency donations after they got into the grain bin. You'd think I'd learn after one time, it took at least two. And I was always relieved when they showed up and slid that big plastic tube down their throat. And when I wrote them the check, I felt this wonderful sense of relief. And then later on, I wondered about my sanity. It was called child rearing. All the things we do for our children. I managed to, uh, you know, the statistics say that Horse owners only keep their horses, I don't know, so many months. I managed to keep, we managed to keep ours about two or three times. Maybe it was only two times longer than most people keep theirs. What's worse is that we had a little horse that was very smart. It knew exactly what I wanted and did exactly the opposite thing. (laughs) What we don't do for our kids. I don't have the time this morning I'm holding about 10 pages of notes. (laughs) The book of Genesis, we find out that God chose Abraham. What was his occupation? He was a shepherd. Isaac, the same. Jacob and Esau, the same. When Jacob takes his family down to Egypt, what uh, what does Joseph tell Jacob to tell Pharaoh? Tell him that you're shepherds. Because the Egyptians detest shepherds. Joseph understood that the influences of Egypt would corrupt his family. And he said, tell him what you are. Be who you're supposed to be. And he'll give you the land of Goshen. Some 200, 400, however you reckon the time, 400 years, probably some 150 to 175 of it, they're slaves. And finally, God has to do something. What does he do? He raises up this little bitty baby boy, taken from a basket, reared after age 12 in Pharaoh's house, schooled in the best schools of the world, maybe in all time. The monuments of Egypt still stand. But when he really wants to get him ready for what needs to happen, he sends him to Midian. And what does he do? He sits down by a well. You can read about in Exodus chapter 2. And along come who? Some shepherdesses, women shepherds. And of course, they're trying to water their flock, and along come some shepherds, male sheep keepers. Moses stands up and drives off the males who are taking advantage of their strength to drive away the daughters of Jethro. And for the next 40 years, he gets the real education. Ellen White says many people will have dispensed with that education, but he needed it to teach him patience and, interestingly enough, honesty, humility. We go through the rest of the scriptures. We come upon a man named David, last of eight 
seemingly insignificant. And what does God do? He passes by the rest. They've left David doing the one thing that matters the most, keeping the sheep. And Samuel says, are there any more kids? And the father says, well, there is one more. He's just keeping the sheep. We go on from there, and we have prophet and priest. Their real role is shepherding. We get to the book of Jeremiah, and 18 times he regards shepherds. In chapter 3, he gives us the greatest promise. He says the real problem here is with the shepherds, and he's not talking about the ones that smell like sheep. And he says, I will give you shepherds after my own heart. The whole concept of parenting, it's a dynamic of the heart of God revealed in the experience of the nation of Israel, established in time and made metaphorically ideal through the role of the shepherd. Every mother is a shepherdess. Every father is a shepherdess. Every teacher is a shepherd or a shepherdess. Every pastor. Everyone has some little flock. Woe be unto the person who never grows up with an experience that enlarges their hearts and develops their person. Take your bulletins out. I don't want you to miss this quote. Take your bulletins out. And I want you to read with me what's in this bulletin. I want you to think about it. The history of David affords one of the most impressive testimonies ever given to the dangers that threaten the soul from power and riches. Now, we, looked, we talked about power and riches last week, too, Solomon's prayer. Don't make me rich, just give me enough. We're living in an age of power and riches and worldly honor, those things that are the most eagerly desired among men. Young people don't desire them. Middle-aged people don't desire them. Older folks, you already know that if you lived your life desiring them, it left you feeling a bit empty. Few have ever passed through an experience better adapted to prepare them for enduring such a test. David's early life as a shepherd, with its lessons of humility and patient toil, and of tender care for his flocks, doing is becoming. David's heart was growing in readiness to care about a nation. The communion with nature in the solitude of the hills, developing his genius for music and poetry, and directing his thoughts to the Creator. The long discipline of his wilderness life, and this next phrase, I want you to get it, calling into exercise. Come on, Goliath. I don't need Saul's armor. This job called into exercise a few things. Courage, fortitude, patience, and faith in God have been appointed by the Lord. There are some jobs that are more dangerous than others. If you're a salesman, you better be really careful because the law of salesmanship is to be whatever the buyer needs you to be. And who gets lost in the posture? And the posturee is sometimes the salesman's own identity. The fact of the matter is, God made his people shepherds. When Jesus comes, he comes as a shepherd. He says, I am what? I am the true, what? Shepherd. I know my sheep. He said, the hireling runs away when danger comes. Now we're back to parenting, teaching, and pastoring. Roles that distinctly shape the life of the young. I'm here to tell you today, COVID-19 and 2020 has probably done more to institutionalize an experience of fear in the heart of young people than any other thing in the last century of American life. 
And if his parents and teachers and pastors were reinforcing the concepts of fear, we are malpracticianers, will be held accountable, and the generation that needs courage to go forward may be the most cowardly we've ever had. There's something about being a teenager on a Bethlehem mountainside and hearing the growl of a bear or a lion, and you've got to make a decision. Am I heading home? Or am I heading into the dark? Some things call for Our children need animals. Our children need nature. Our children need all the things around them. These are the places our children need to be. Now, I only need about 45 minutes more to preach this sermon. So I'm going to have to tie it off. Paul, he was a shepherd. He talks in the terms of shepherding. So did Peter. Paul writes in Hebrews about the great shepherd of the sheep. I was thinking to myself, is there a reference in the book of Revelation to the shepherd? I do want to look at this, so take your Bibles and go to Revelation 7, 17. Revelation, I want you to see this. This is the most precious thing. There's only one reference to a shepherd in the book of Revelation, and I want to take you to it. Revelation 7, 17. This is an amazing, amazing thing. You know this verse. You've just never thought about it in the constructs of a shepherd. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of the life, of the water of life. And you know the rest of it, don't you? And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He is forever, eternally our shepherd. Now, I told somebody this was a Christmas sermon. And you're saying, no, it's not. Yeah, it is. So Zechariah had already had a miracle. Saw an angel by the right side of the altar. Told an old man he was going to have a baby. That baby would become John the Baptist. Every priest in Israel, every priest in Jerusalem knew this. When the wise men came, they didn't care. It appeared there was no interest in the star that night. But there was a group sitting out on the hillsides of Bethlehem. And they were talking and reminiscing about the miracles that had already started to happen. They knew that it was time. And in the courts of heaven, as Jesus was getting ready to take his crown off and set it down, The angels are contemplating what this is going to mean and why he's doing this. Finally, when a mama births a little boy, the God of the cosmos, the creator of you and me, and she holds him in in her hands, and a father looks over the shoulder and peers into the face of a boy that will grow to save the world, save the universe. All of the angels are in heaven wondering, who are we going to tell? There's only one group. There's only one group. Cast off by society, despised not only by the Egyptians, but by Israelite culture of their day. As they're sitting around the fire that night, one angel appears. Get ready for this, guys. Your job looks so unimportant. Your role looks so insignificant. But I've got good news. You're the first people to know. Friends, don't lose hope. This Christmas, reestablish your role as a shepherd. Love the sheep. 
Take the risk. Have the courage. Let the role call forth from you what the role created in David. And get ready for the last journey of giving light to this world because the final group that takes the message, it'll be a kingdom of priests and shepherds. It'll be people whose hearts are calibrated by love, nerved to courage by love, and will go all the way into the jaws of death like Jesus to save a soul. On that cross, he was and remains and forever will be the keeper of the sheep. He loves you. He loves you still. He had a daring and dangerous job. It was very dear to him. And this Christmas, we have something to celebrate because he's the good shepherd. May God help us all to draw very near to his heart of tenderness. And we are going to take the time to sing our closing hymn, even though it's going to eat a few minutes into Sabbath school. So take your hymn books and open them up, and let's sing about those daring and dear people. Let's stand together. Recommit yourself to your role, Mom. Recommit yourself to your role, Dad. Recommit yourself, teacher. Recommit yourself, pastor. Recommit yourself, Christian. Let's sing. you, Lord, that with such great patient love, with such exceptional, never-to-be-fully-understood self-sacrifice, you have 
shepherded us up to the gates of eternity. Forgive us, Lord, when we have found our way around the shepherds that we call mom and dad. Forgive us, Lord, we, we have managed to disregard the voice of dedicated teacher and consecrated pastor. Forgive those people in those roles, including myself, Lord, when we've stepped aside for fear for ourselves. And thank you so much that you will for always ever be the same, unchanged and unchanging. So now, Lord, bless us in this Christmas season. May we not fail to be the people that a wandering flock called humanity needs. Give us wisdom and grace. May we show ourselves full of heart and love to serve and to save. And bless us this Christmas season with a sense of how you've cared for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.